Welcome to another edition of We Need to Talk About Movies. Brought to you by Banterflix.com. And now, here's your host, Jim McLean. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, I am indeed your host, Jim McLean, Editor-in-Chief of the Bantaflix Movie Review website. Welcome to the latest episode of We Need to Talk About Movies. If this is your first time checking out the pod, then you might be wondering what it's all about. Well, the clue's in the title. It's pretty straightforward. We need to talk about movies. Each week we talk about a specific film. It might be a new release. It might be a cult classic. It might be a film you've never heard of before. I gather together some contributors and we have a chat about the film. Sometimes we do get a little bit spoilerific. We try our best to warn you if that's the case but uh, we try to have a bit of fun in the process and hopefully you enjoy listening to it if it's your first time checking out the pod welcome to the madness if you've been listening for a while then thank you for continuing to tune in this week we are talking about the el duce tapes it's available on vod services to rent or buy now I'm going to be joined later on by local writer Victoria Brown known to regular listeners as Banderflix's resident Disney queen but before you hear Victoria and I sharing our thoughts on the film, you'll also hear my interview with the El Duce Tapes producer, Tim Kirk. I'll say this right from the get-go, listeners. We will be dealing with some sensitive subject matter throughout this podcast, primarily the issue of rape. It will quickly become apparent to y'all that the El Duce was not a nice guy. He's someone who championed rape rock, and uh, we're going to be discussing that throughout the pod and if any of you might find this too much of a trigger then I'd maybe suggest giving this podcast a miss but I can assure you we try our best to talk about the subject matter as sensitively as possible as we possibly can but uh, I just wanted to make that apparent to you all right from the offset and with that we will move on and get stuck into this week's pod. First up you'll hear my chat with Tim and before we get into that interview, let's play a clip of the El Duce tips. Whatever it takes for entertainment. How do you describe Mentor's music? What is it to you? Uh, male chauvinism rock. songs do you think are his best songs? Um, I guess maybe Free Fix for a Fuck is a big favorite of mine. I think to a certain extent he's like a great artist in that he doesn't really give a damn what people think of him. I've got my lyrics and if they don't like it, they could eat shit out of my ass. And he was like running around the bus going dig -dig 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 into people's face with this pee balloon. It's as easy as that. I mean, he's successful because he gets reaction. Uh. It's like there's a need for that in society. El Duce had a lot of weird aspects to his personality. What's that like, not having a home? Makes me want to drink more. I think I'd make the first greatest dictator that this country has ever had. I'm American all the way. So that's a clip of the El Duce tapes, and I'm joined now by Tim Kirk, the film's producer. Tim, 
I'm going to let you explain to our viewers and explain to our listeners what is the El Duce tapes all about. All right. Uh, Let's see how long have we got? How long have we got? Because there's a lot to unpack within this document on within this documentary. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, and uh, I guess I could start with the history of the, yeah. of the film. How's that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this goes way back, but like 25 years ago, maybe more. Um, uh, I was this 22-year-old kid kicking around Hollywood, and I had a friend who was an actor, and, and, uh, and uh, we were... We one night we found El Duce and decided to take our my friend's huge uh, VHS camcorder down to a place where they were recording uh, their new album um, in this dive in Hollywood that was just you know it was it was Gamora and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we uh, and we filmed and it, and initially it was kind of a, a jokey project like. Uh, Ryan uh, was was on camera, and he was playing this kind of Dick Clark character who was uh, was you know like very very glib with Hell, who was drunk and mm. offensive, and he would say "Oh my" and things like that. And uh, anyway, we 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 sort of struck up a friendship with these guys. We started filming them. I got kind of bored of the project, um, but uh, Ryan uh, filmed for two years, uh, just hung out with these guys. Um, I would pop in and help with the interviews now and then, but then uh, I lost track of him. And so, you know, a million years later, I got back in touch and we got a hold of the tapes. He'd shot over 40 hours of footage and I got uh, David Lawrence involved and I got Rodney Asher involved and uh, we finally made a film out of it. You, you talked, I mean, right from the get go, we see, that the aforementioned El Duce is an offensive character. There's no way of of getting away from that. I mean, you, you kind of can't look away. And I first became aware of this documentary last year at the London Film Festival in 2019. Uh, I didn't get a chance to see it then, but I know from kind of talking with fellow critics at the time, as you do back in the day, you know, it feels like a lifetime ago now when you went to a festival at the end of the day, when you watched the press releases and you went to screenings, you descended to the pub and uh, had a chat about what you'd watched. And I know quite a few of my fellow critics had saw this and I'd said, look, it's like a train a train wreck in the best possible way. You can't look away because you just kind of go, is this guy for real? And just, I want to pick up something that you said, like back at the time you were involved with the original footage for this. You kind of said you you kind of got bored of this. Was it? Was there any particular reason that? Was it the characters themselves? Because, I mean, you talked there that you developed a bit of a friendship. These guys, I, I, I'm just coming from me. Um, they would be difficult people to to say that I would difficult people. I would probably would I or would I not want them to be in my circle of friends? I don't know, but, but just kind of just on that note, I mean, do you recollect and thinking about it back? Can you remember kind of why you you kind of moved away after you kind of got a little bit bored of the of the project at the time? Well, I think you uh, yes, and I think you. Uh, Laser focus on two words I used, which was bored and friendship. And I think those, I think I 
overstated both of those. Okay. I, I was less bored as in, well, let's go to the second one first. I, I, the friendship, I, I definitely overstated. I think Ryan actually became friends with them. I became, uh, I guess, a little more comfortable being in their uh, presence. Um, but I didn't get bored as much as I just kind of, um, the, the relentless uh, need to offend that is was El Duce uh, is exhausting in an hour and a half film, but it is it is exhausting in the sitting room or following him around to a club or you know trying to navigate getting him through a door that he's been banned from going through. You know, it it, it, it just it was just wearing. I would yeah. say more than that. Now, I don't sound like, I sound like I'm not selling the film very well because the guy is fascinating. Oh, yeah, but, no, don't don't get me wrong. As I say, it, as yeah. I say, it, it is like the only example I can really use, Tim, is like it's a car crash. You cannot look away. I, I've i watched this now. It's available to, to rent or buy now. And I've, I've watched it. I've watched it twice because I just yeah. kind of find it compelling in a voyeur. Voyeuristic isn't probably the right kind of way to, to, to kind of describe it, but I just find myself kind of going... I want to go back. Did he say that? Are those lyrics yeah. in that song? And then particularly near the end of the documentary, as there's kind of parallels kind of with society now being drawn, you kind of go, yeah, you want to go back and connect the dots. You know, it, it is it's, it is a, a riveting watch. I have to say it's probably not the, the right way to turn, but you cannot look away. So um, please do not think you're underselling the project ah. in any way. Okay, good, good, good. Don't want to do that. I... Uh... Uh, well, that's great to hear because I, um, you know, we've had our nose in this thing for, you know, three years or more. And so it's really great to hear that it's it's not, that it's still, you can still watch it twice and it's still fresh. That's really. Uh, yeah. As, as I say, it, it's it's not probably the best way to sell that, that idea of a car crash that you just kind of, what will he say next? And I, I had kind of, when watching it the first time, I can, why, why am I, or where have I seen this character before? Where have I seen this guy before? And it wasn't, it wasn't Jerry Springer, but it was the Nick Broomfield documentary. And that's mentioned within this. That was where it suddenly kind of, yeah, I, I, I'm not a mentors fan. I never was. That's not my type of music, but I couldn't remember where I, I couldn't place him where I knew him from or where I'd seen that character from. And it was then when you go back and you kind of in the doc in this documentary you mentioned that he appears kind of eight days before his death and yeah. he, he appears on the nick broomfeld documentary and yeah. it's like that's when the dots were connected for me coming back specifically to this feature this this is something you've clearly it's been there and been in development for a while what what's the process for you of of producing uh, a project like this? What are the central challenges and then what are the kind of hurdles you find yourself getting across during the that process? Well, uh, the initial uh, challenge was, you know, we had so much footage mm -hmm. um, and we really needed to kind of like figure out what the movie was. And um, I was watching, I watched all those 40 hours, you know, pretty closely and I... Um, I logged things that I thought were were uh, were interesting and themes that might uh, you know might run through the whole thing. But uh, I have to give a lot of credit to David Lawrence, who was the mm. first director to come on and then worked uh, together with Rodney when he came on, of uh, realizing there could be a feature in here. Because I have to say, after those forty hours, I was feeling a little worn down uh, again from L's sort of shtick. 
and figuring, well, you know, maybe we should make this as short as possible. But he actually found, you know, you know, the compelling themes that made it really work. Um, so that was one of the challenges. Um, second of all, you know, I mean, we, this is self-financed. So uh, fortunately, we have goodwill with some incredibly talented people that we've worked with in the past, like Jonathan Snipes, who did the, uh, the, 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 the sound mix and also the, the music. And some good friends over at Anarchy Post who helped us do uh, an incredible job with the color correction. You know, this is all VHS te- te- tapes. That was, sitting that, yeah, that was one thing I did want to ask you about. Sorry, sorry to yeah. cut across, because that was one thing. No, you know, the, the challenge of, of working with this old VHS footage, you know, and bringing it, you know, now we're in the world of, of 4K, DCP. Having had a had a camcorder back in my youth, you know, and looking back at that footage, it is not 4K. It is not 4K no. you're dealing with, but kind of the challenge of of bringing that, I suppose, analog content to the digital era. I suppose that I kind of cut across you when you were saying that, but you know, the challenge of bringing that footage to and and having to be able to work with it. Yeah, well, I I think the the the, the answer is we just had to embrace it and. Uh, you know, glitches and all. And, and we really got into the aesthetic of that. You know, those, you know, those crazy lines that form across the screen when you're probably taping over something else, you know, like a Seinfeld uh, episode that was originally on the tape or something. And, um, and, uh, so we just really embraced that. And then the guys in post, uh, we actually kind of ex- accentuated the VHSness, if that's a word. Of the, of the, of the imagery, uh, rather than trying to pretend we could actually yeah. smooth it over, which we couldn't. And, and, you know, that fits with, with not only the time, it's a real time capsule. Um, but also I think with, uh, with sort of the, sort of the, the roughness and unformness of, of our subject matter. Yeah. What was that challenge like with work for you from producing point of view, working with the, the dual? directors kind of on that project you mentioned david lawrence there and you have uh, rodney asher if i'm getting yeah. that right working with those two you know what was that like on a on a project like this having two directors at the helm um well it it was i uh i don't know this is I, I don't want to sound like they're children but i you're gonna make I mean, you're gonna make them sound like children so it's okay yeah <laughs> no but i I can relate it. I'm I'm a father, and I can relate it to when my daughter was younger, when we'd get together for a play date or something, and I would sort of need to be there. And oh, don't, uh, no, that's his shovel or whatever, you know. Um, it wasn't like they were at each other's uh, throats, but they were working out their creative uh, relationship. And there was a really wonderful moment when I realized I could not, I could miss an edit session. Or perhaps it would even be better if I missed an editing session because these guys were really grooving and they had their own language. And that's, I think, when things just really took off. Yeah. Also, just coming back on what you said earlier on about being there with the food, what's your, mem- of, what's your memories of of taking the, the cameras into, because I think, is it a couple of gigs as well? Were you yeah. in at that stage? You know, what's your memories of taking that? And I, I'm curious to know what a, a crowd for like the mentors would have been like and how they would have reacted to having like to an extent, you know, a camera crew. And even I suppose today, like uh, thinking that cameras are not as kind of easily brought around as they, as they are now. 
You know, they're not yeah. as well now. But, you know, now we can shoot. We can go to a concert and shoot, you know, on one of these. That's yeah. clearly not what you're shooting with then. Your memories of that and being involved at that time? Yeah, I I, I shot most, Ryan shot most of that. I shot one. Um, and it was a really, uh, it, well, you know, first of all, uh, LJJ was incredibly uh, psyched to have a camera in the room, right? And so the bigger the better for him, you know. It, it made him feel like, hey, we're on we're on camera here, you know. And uh, but but yeah, it was it was physically difficult because these guys are moving around and this thing is big and it's heavy, right? Uh, but the other funny part about it is, you know, these guys have had very very ill will for most of the. Uh, most of the uh, places that would book them were were, were, were were not like, oh, fantastic, anything you want, you know, fear with the, with the mentor. So it was a lot of work just to get in the door, you know. Um, I'm going to imagine you didn't take that camera into the mosh pit. I'm, I'm going to. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, that's that's not going anywhere near that. You know what? I know you said you kind of you stepped away at the time, but and you kind of find that being around them an exhausting process. But what we see on camera, you know, was that what we see? What was that what you saw off camera when the cameras aren't there? Or was there in a sense, I suppose, of, of, of playing up to the camera or even in the, amongst those 40 hours of footage that you mentioned from what we get is condensed down to well, uh, an hour and 44 minute documentary. Yeah. You know, what? there's no denying that is the El Duce that, you know, we've come to know, but when the cameras yeah. aren't there, you know, is the El Duce, you know, there's El Duce and I suppose we, we have um, the, the name, the, the, the gentleman's name has went out of my head completely. Um, you know, is he as much as what we see on camera as when the cameras aren't rolling? Yeah. Well, so there, there was no moment where it was cut and then he was like, yeah. Oh, like, can we do that again, please? You know, he was very, if anything, what we were cutting out was the 75% of the stuff that didn't work, that his joke, you know, because he was just on all the time. And, you know, his uh, his humor is not nuanced, you know. Um, so when uh, so when it, when it didn't work, it was just, uh, you know, it was like, you know, single entendres and... Uh, and just sort of like the obvious thing that you would get angry about or say to to be obscene. Um, so, you know, I was reminded of that going through the tapes of like how much of this was just eye rolling, uh, just him, him trying to, to get the bit, to get his, get his internal shtick going, you know. Um, but he never, he was never... The moments you see where he sort of dropped his uh, persona and so forth that are in the film, mm. those were the those were the only ones we had. You know, it wasn't like that was from a mass amount of footage. Like, yeah, and and what do you? What's your view now? Looking at it now in 2020, I suppose looking back at that time, that stage in the 90s, and kind of the media attention that bands like the Mentors got, and how you know, we, we look at that, you know, controversy, it does, you know, they they, he, they state that, I, if I'm remembering this correctly in the documentary, the more controversial they were, the more media attention they got, it, it benefited their record sales, and then that helps fuel the beast, and there's a lot of parallels 
we could draw with with other events, you know, where we've seen yeah. that, where the media has reacted in something and 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 basically looked at something, and then they've they've become. Uh, I'm trying to avoid mentioning Donald Trump here as, yeah, as best right, I, I can, yeah, but you but you yeah. see you see that parallel from there. The fact that the more controversial and you know, there's no denying some of the lyrics that are they are you know, repulsive, they're shocking, but they're deliberately meant to be. And just looking at, because I suppose in a way, in a small way, even bringing the cameras in plays a, a small part in that as well of you're filming something because you have been shocked by something. You have been shocked and outraged and you want to document it. Looking now back in that at 2020, what's your kind of general views on that kind of idea? Well, I, I kind of feel that uh, El Duce is, is sort of a man before his time because I don't think he got the um, the longevity of his shtick could have lasted a lot longer in a, in a world like now where there would have been so many more venues. You know, he did Spring, Springer and like one other thing, you know, and that and that was actually sort of late in his in his career, you know, Um the thing that 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 first caught him into the uh, into the public eye, and the thing that caught my eye, was when he was his lyrics were read on the as part of a congressional uh, investigation into bad lyrics and how they deal with that. And to me, when I was twenty or whatever, and that happened, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard in the world. You know, that his that these ridiculous lyrics uh, meant to offend were. Uh, we're being elevated to this incredible, like playing in this room, you know, of the, the hollowed sanctions of, of the U.S. government. But you know, looking back on it, I mean, that was just the first step for him, and uh, I don't think it's a good or bad thing. But I, I think he would have done quite. I think his bit would have gone a lot further if he was doing it right now. I don't know if he'd gotten to the presidency, but you know, maybe close. <laughs> we'll never know. Let's just wonder. Let's just say we're glad that El Duce did not do social media. That's all we can probably <laughs> agree on at that point. You mentioned, you know, that this is a, a low budget documentary. What's been its journey on the festival circuit? It has been successful. As I mentioned, it played the London Film Festival. It was an official selection, uh, official yep. competition, if I remember right. Uh, I, I, I think. Uh, if I'm recall, I think it played the Dublin Film Festival as well. Possibly, yeah. well, uh, I think it played Dublin. Hot Docs. Yeah. Um, we played Hot Docs in Toronto, a couple other places. We mentioned, uh, we mentioned, you know, the fact that 2020, we try our best to not talk about COVID. But, uh, right. you know, it's changed a lot of things and it's changed the lay of the land, a lot of things. You know, what's your kind of thoughts at the minute? Because we, we mentioned, I mentioned there, you know, festivals it's about networking it's all about that type of stuff your kind of thoughts we've seen a lot of festivals move online i know the film's here available as i said at the start of this interview you can pick it up in video on demand services now you can rent or buy it but just your thoughts as as someone who is producing documentaries you've had success in the past with the stuff like room 237 which i adore i absolutely adore oh, that but um your general thoughts on kind of the changing shifts and the as we go into 2021 what the lasting legacy because we've seen was it yesterday or we've seen very fairly recently that a lot of releases now particularly in america are going to be going to warner brothers max the simultaneous release that's big budget productions but what about the likes of 
work that you're working on? Yeah, well, personally, as a filmmaker, you know, the, the biggest jolt I get is watching it, a film with an audience. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is, that's, that's really hard that that's not really going to be much of an option in the, in the near future, at least. Um, on the other hand, and also I miss what you're talking about, the sort of, um, the conversations afterwards that come from a life. Um, I mean, I guess there are obviously there are more and more opportunities with streaming and so forth. If we're moving in that direction, the more people can see it, which is nice. Um, but I really, you know, I miss, the, I mean, like I'm really enjoying this because we're having a one on one conversation about the film. And that's about as close as I'm getting right now to getting that sort of that that rush of watching a film with with an audience and watching them go up and down and gasp and a couple of people have walked out. Um, you know, it's really an exhilarating process and I'm really going to miss it. Yeah, because I suppose the way I've I've thought about this in the past, a lot of films now do find their audience now on streaming services, but a festival circuit has always helped kind of maybe elevate that ever so slightly to help build notoriety above because the streaming service it is a huge kind of it's a democratizing platform you know it gives you access to a lot of viewers at the touch of a button but also there's a hell of a lot of other content out there then that is suddenly all in that same platform. So I suppose right. there's that sense that the festival circuit in the past, because I know we've been, when we go to festivals like London, there's films that seemingly dis- disappear and then suddenly they arrive on Netflix, on Prime. Uh, I'm not sure, kind of, I know there's a lot of other streaming services out in the States that are kind of just state specific, but is that something as well? You kind of just generally your thoughts on that on how a festival circuit, the traditional festival circuit, watching stuff with an audience, as we've kind of said, all the things that we love because we are passionate about cinema, that, you know, it, it's going to be a big potential void if it's just a, for a little while anyway, of festivals going mostly online. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think the, 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 a really good example of that um in my world is with room 237 which played at sundance and and it had something that i think a lot of films that play uh, a festival uh that, that have their initial release on the festival is there's a feeling uh, that you're never going to see it again like that's it this is this is the moment and you feel really so lucky and a little blessed that you're going to get to see this thing that's going to disappear and everyone wants to talk about it and write about it and it's ephemeral and then when it does break through then that um that energy continues with it you know and i think there's so many films that you know we could think of that uh that enjoyed that kind of that kind of um debut and uh uh, so I think that's 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 tough. And then also there's the <laughs> the sense of community that we keep coming back to in this conversation uh, is is very powerful. You know that you know with people 
you know, it's like trading uh, baseball cards or something. It's like, holy shit, look at this thing I found, and you should see it. And, you know, and and that's 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 a really powerful influence as well. So that when it does end up on the streaming or or other platform, there's already that sort of built-in feeling uh, yeah. to, to the viewing. You know. Yeah. But but look, let's not be doom and gloom. Like, what are the projects yeah. that are you, what projects are you working on right now? How has kind of, I suppose, it, I'm saying let's move on because we've, we were talking about COVID. Like, how has that affected you? I mean, what have, from a producing point of view, what have you been able to have, what what have you been able to work in, work with, um, or what have you, have you been working on over the past several months and kind of what kind of going forward will be the next projects that we'll hopefully be talking about in the future? All right. Well, um, well, first we had something in Rani and I had been talking about this project for a long time. Um, and it started off as called the, 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 the branding of that. And now it's called the glitch in the matrix. And it, uh, it's something that we've been working along. And fortunately it was in, uh, a far enough post-production that we were able to continue to get it done. Uh, it got into some festivals. It got canceled. It's been rescheduled. But it will be coming out soon. So, so that one we kind of squeaked through. Um, and then I've got a couple other projects that I'm, I'm, I'm near completion, but it's very difficult to get, um, interviews right now. Um, that it's, you know, that you feel safe. Um, I shot, uh, an interview the other day with a, a 90 year old man because, uh, you know, he's got some health issues and I didn't want him to, to disappear before we finish the film. Um, but you know, it's masks and all that, and it's, it's very difficult. But okay, but I gotta, I gotta, I, I get to quit real quick. I've got a thing coming out, which will be uh, just an odd view on the, um, on the old the television show, Miami Vice. Um, a very personal view from a, a subject. Um, and I have a thing on a forgotten. Western star named Charles Sterrett, who made over 150 films in the 30s and 40s, but no one remembers him, and a couple other things in the works. But that's that's where I'm at right now. Okay, those are those are intriguing projects. You've definitely kind of uh, caught my interest with that. You know, just just because you mentioned they're talking about interviews, like I know we're talking, like we're talking now over Zoom. You know, that's obviously not how you'd want to do interviews for. Uh, for a film because unfortunately i mean it's grand for for us and kind of what we're doing right now but it's not content quality content you know so i suppose there's a lot of challenges there right now in trying to set up those those interviews and kind of working with them yeah yeah it's it's difficult it, 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 with this glitch in the matrix like a lot like with the vhs and Duce, we're able to work sort of the skype format into yeah. the sort of the texture of the film but uh, yeah, I'm just not into that. I, I, especially the films. These are all films I started before COVID and they just don't feel like if I tried to put a Zoom interview in there, it would just, it just, it just wouldn't fit. I'm sure there are films that that would work and this, neither of these would, would that work? It just wouldn't. Yeah. No, I know because I've, I've spoke to a few filmmakers. We run a, uh, a far we run a horror festival here in belfast we've just set one up and unfortunately our inaugural year had to go completely digital and we did a lot of interviews like this 
And a few of those interviews, they do documentaries and we're kind of talking about the project and say, look, it's it's great for this, but for the quality that we want to be able to do, you know, doing an interview via Zoom, it's just not the same. And we've recently started our own TV show back here in Belfast. And I've forgotten how much I missed physical contact and being able to sit in a room because it's very different kind of, okay, yes, we can talk and I can kind of listen to what you're saying and pick up what you're saying. But I think it's a very different thing from when you're sitting with someone two meters at, at least well now anyway two meters apart from you and be able to read their body language and be able to talk so yeah you know these are all complications but anyway you're not here to talk to me about uh, interviewing and things like that but i'm very interested in those projects that you're working on uh, the el duce tapes as we've said at the start of the interview is available now here in the uk through various vod services and i would highly recommend uh, checking it out. So, Tim Kirk, thank you very much for your time this evening. Thank you. Well, thank you. And it was a real, it was really good speaking to you. And uh, and uh, and and best of luck with the rest of all those things you're talking about. Sounds fantastic. So that's my interview with Tim Kirk, the producer of the El Duce tapes, and I'm joined now. This seems like a strange time to bring this up, but Banterflix's resident Disney queen. Strange that we find her talking about the El Duce tapes, uh, mm-hmm. and as I said in my introduction to this week's podcast, we're going to be talking and dealing with some sensitive issues that might be some triggers for some people and uh, we will try our best to talk about those as sensitively and as uh, as well as sensitively really is the only way to put it as we can with some of the discussions uh some of the issues raised within this documentary um i know we're usually quite light-hearted here at banderflix i get a sense we still will be with uh, this documentary but um there's no denying it has some pretty serious and pretty dark places it goes to with its uh the el duce and some of the things he comes out with victoria we, we've talked to tim about the documentary so we don't need to spend too much time setting it up um other than the fact that this is a documentary that uses footage that was found over 40 hours of it was condensed into just an hour and 40 minutes worth of a documentary that deals with the El Duce, who was a member of the band The Mentors, that uh, kind of came to notoriety in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, he's not a great guy, Victoria. <laughs> I mean, that's as kind of flippant a nice as nice way can, to put it. <laughs> that's as flippant as I can be in this. But uh, yeah, I find this, as I said in the interview with, with Tim, I find this very hard to watch but i couldn't watch, look away in that sense like a train wreck that you wanted to see how far this guy goes i couldn't and i said this in the document i couldn't remember where i knew him from or where i knew the face or the character from and it's they mentioned in the documentary the other documentary that he shows up when with uh kurt and Kobe, uh kurt and courtney and uh i remember watching that at the time and finding him thoroughly offensive then and a whole documentary but the guy is pretty He's a pretty offensive character. And I remember at the time when I thought of people that would make, and I have an interesting conversation with about the documentary, I thought of yourself, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. So what did you think about the El Duce tapes? Um, I, I, I had no idea what to expect. Um, 
like I wouldn't watch music documentaries that much. The only one that I would be familiar with would be the Malays Brothers one about the Rolling Stones concert mm-hmm. in the seventies, where a member of the audience was stabbed and it was caught on camera. Uh, it's called Gimme Shelter. If you want to watch it, it's very, very good. Um, but I knew nothing about the mentors. I didn't know who El Duce was, so I went in completely blind. And it was a really, really tough watch. Yeah. The, as I said, I, I didn't know anything about them either. I, I just I couldn't figure out where I knew this guy from. And it's only in the later stages of the documentary when it touches on the fact that I think it's eight days before he died, he was interviewed uh, for this documentary on Kurt and Courtney, and um, yeah, um, so so this is not a nice guy. And uh, as I say, you know, Del Duch, he he's someone who kind of proclaimed to be the creator of rip rock, rip rock. And uh, let's let's not say I'm not going to be going iTunes and finding any of his back catalogue. I don't really want to talk about any of the lyrics that are there. They are pretty offensive. They are pretty nasty. I think what what I find, and I touched on this in the documentary, in this this idea of someone who was pretty a marginal part of of that kind of metal scene, and it's only when he became front and he got front and center and stuff like Jerry Springer when he became sensationalist TV that he really kind of not became you know you know, a superstar by any means, but he definitely, you know, there was a sense that the media fueled the fire and the interest in this. And I mean, I drew the comparison with Tim when we were talking about this, a certain, you know, outgoing president, kind of very similar kind of, kind of attitude, kind of similar approach by the media. Someone that, oh, this is what he says. Let's look at what is what he says. We'll hang on every word that he says. And suddenly he becomes mainstream. He becomes a center of attention. Do you feel like from watching, although you don't know or you didn't know about the mentors and you didn't know about the El Duch, do you still see looking at now, do you see a legacy of, of what he stood for being still present in, I suppose, kind of, uh, I want to say, mainstream culture but can you see a legacy from the El Duch? It's a a hard question because like there are still people like him about I don't know if they've been directly influenced by how much like media coverage he got back then like he was very much one of those people that thrived off all the controversy like he lived for it he loved it he admitted that Mm -hmm. and I think it was a member it was another member of the band said that once all these censorship groups started hating on him, that their their sales actually went up mm. because they got more attention. Um, well, there's that that famous scene in, in Congress where they read mm-hmm. lyrics. And it's looking at it in context or out of context. It's quite funny. It's quite funny. Oh, yeah, you know, it was, it's you look at it that and you have this kind of very middle class American reading out these really offensive lyrics and he can't get quite get stuff to work. <laughs> And uh, yeah, you find yourself, I find myself laughing at it, but at the same time, I just find myself, I would not want to be in the company of this man. I really wouldn't. You know, he's he's been interviewed, he's drinking, he's clearly, by the time he's been interviewed here, and it clearly shows a progression, he is an alcoholic. He's a, I don't even know if he's a functioning alcoholic, because he's just... He's out. I mean, I don't think we see him very often in this 
documentary without a drink by his hand. Mm-hmm. But he's drinking, he's farting, um, he's just a nasty person. And I can kind of see in a weird way, I mean, so the kind of the story behind this is that we have Ryan Sexton who discovers him unconscious outside his house, starts to find out about him, and then becomes fascinated by him. And I can get that fascination. Can you, I mean, I mean I'm saying this, like, I couldn't look away from the documentary. You know, I, I couldn't turn it off because it's like, what's he going to say next? Where is this going to go? Uh, I can find myself, because I asked this question to Tim, you know, in a weird way, someone like Ryan who's coming in, who's documenting, bringing his camera into their gigs, that in a weird way is also fueling the fire. It's a camera to perform to. It's um, giving him kind of, you know, it's 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 fueling the ego, and you kind of go because I know I asked him this, you know, because he was there in those early those early recordings. Like, is the guy for real? It's like, is it an act? And that's what I really thought the documentary was going to say that it's revealed because he does talk about you know his work, his song, his music is art. I don't know where you want to come down in that. It's it's it is an interesting kind of idea. You know, we think of the. The America, the freedom of speech is such a big part of American culture and American society. He has the freedom of speech. Whether or not you go as far as to say that's art, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, your thoughts, Victoria? I was kind of the same as you. I spent the whole time wondering, like, is he serious? Like, does he actually believe what he's saying? Or is he just saying it to get a reaction out of people? Like, I know people that do that. I have known people that do that. Because of like the nature of what he says, all this misogynistic pro Hitler stuff, and I think the documentary balances it quite well. Like it has clips of him saying all this and then saying, "I don't actually believe it," and then he has his girlfriend of six weeks. Yeah, I hope <laughs> hope she's doing better than she was then. His sister and then a couple of other bandmates and like members of other bands. Mm. No, nobody seems to really know if he was serious or not, and I I still am not sure. And the yeah. whole lyrics is art thing. Like his, his sister did say that he, where is it? His lyrics are inspired by what makes people cringe. Is that art? Is I, I don't know. I certainly cringed when I watched this because we were talking about, you know, trigger, trigger warnings for the documentary. It literally starts right from the jugular where we see him performing on stage and mm-hmm. he has the executioner's mask on, which was part of his shtick. And I think his first song is like kind of grab. I think the lyrics are on like grab him, rape him, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you go okay, right? I I'm not gonna like this guy, and I'm not gonna enjoy enjoy spending time with this guy and being in his company. In a weird way, I come back to that point. I think if I was an interviewer, I would probably find him fascinating. Mm-hmm. in a way, but I would probably not want to spend as much time as Ryan Sexton did with him. You know, and they say it becomes a fascist. He just shot and shot and shot. I think it says it's already he was going to make a short on him and he mm-hmm. just kept shooting. He kept shooting uh, until the end where we really see well it's sad. I mean I've 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 seen alcoholism mm-hmm. At work close to home in the past, you know, you see once it has a grip of someone, there's no letting go mm-hmm. unless they seek help. And like there's a scene near the end where the El Duche is is nothing more than a character 
of of ridicule. He's at a house party. Oh he, God, that was hard to watch. He's pretty. He's pretty wasted. He's is is saying it lightly, and I, I, I'm not going to say I'm whiter than white. I've probably had a fair shoe, fair share of moments in my life. I don't know about you, Victoria. I I, I couldn't comment, but um, I don't think I've ever been that bad. I don't think I've ever been that bad, and I don't know. I don't think I felt sorry for him. I don't think in any way, but. I, I felt like I should feel sorry for him. And there was parts of the documentary where, because they obviously balanced showing his really outrageous comments and then they balanced it with his background and how his, his father abused him and how mm. him and his sister were terrified of him and how his sister basically said that he, El Duce grew up to be everything his father hated. Mm. He What he became was a reaction to his father's abuse. And th- at that point, I was like, are they... Are they doing this to make me feel sorry for him? And I found it really, really hard to sympathize because I've known people who have been through really awful stuff and they haven't behaved or said anything like that. Yeah. yeah it, it comes, it's hard. Like It comes back to a big thing. Can you enjoy a documentary, but like, well, either in a film as well, you know, can you enjoy a film, but not like a central character? You, that has been an issue. We've touched on this before with previous films. I really like this documentary. I, I think there's flaws in it. I think there's things mm-hmm. I would like to, to have done more. Near the end, it starts to draw parallels with the legacy, not so much of the mentors, not so much of the El, of El Duce, but kind of what he stood for and kind of, you know, with the media, how it sensationalized him and then how, as already alluded to, we think of President Trump and his rise to power. Mm-hmm. But um, I personally, I wish they'd started to do that sooner in the yeah. documentary rather than leaving that to almost the, the last 10 minutes there's well there's a couple of clips yeah south even park. yeah yeah there's a couple of clips from south park i'm you're always going to get me onto a winner with south park <laughs> and i do love that episode in particular where they talk about tro- <laughs> trolling and uh, i think is it norway norway or trolling oh, yes. <laughs> is going is go- is going to be trolling the nation they kind of talk about that idea of what if one person could use that power to provoke a reaction from someone by saying such horrible nasty things you know exactly Mm -hmm. who they're talking about tim kirk the producer made no bones about it he knew exactly who they were talking about whenever they they made this documentary i just wish they'd drawn that into the narrative or brought it into the mix sooner Mm -hmm. rather than very much at the start an onslaught of this guy's offensive they make it quite clear they were not the only offensive rock band at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're very fair with that. Yeah. The only one I kind of knew, I possibly think from Jerry Springer, from watching it, because my father was obsessed with Jerry Springer back in the day, was Guar. I don't know, mm-hmm. Victoria, have you any of their best hits? Oh, God, no, I was familiar with them, because I would, like, I was fam- I was familiar with shock rock and what that's mm-hmm. all about. Like, if, if you're not, it's just um, rock that's meant to, provoke a reaction on you so they use violence they use provocative imagery like blood costumes masks um modern example will be slipknot mm-hmm. they're obviously not as bad as likes of the mentors but that's kind of what they're going for um but they were very very big in the 90s and like they did love provoking a reaction out of people guar they were like in the same vein as the mm-hmm. mentors but they they kind of took a stand against el duce once he started promoting all the pro-rape stuff, and I'm glad they actually said something. 
Yeah, there's a great scene in the in the documentary where they're all on Jerry Springer and they're being interviewed. And there's like this little kid who loves Guar, and he's like, "Yeah, I love these guys. These stand for, but this guy," and he points at El Duce, "He's a dick, or he's that an absolute." Really- <laughs> and you're just like, "Yeah, because because he is." You know, there's a scene again. Such a dick. There's a scene again with the, on the Jerry Springer show where he meets a woman, and at first you kind of think, "Okay, this is kind of the token." White middle class America, you know, we think of uh, uh, Reverend Lovejoy's wife in The Simpsons. Yeah. Won't somebody think of, think the, of children? the children? And you think of that, but then it's revealed that she's someone who herself was raped when when she was younger, and the reaction of any normal person would be, "Oh my God, that's nasty. That's horrible. My God." The reaction of this man is to say, "I thought I knew you from somewhere," and you just so and, gross. And you like, just, I, I could feel myself just going, "Ugh." Yeah, because because you know we think like I don't know like we I'm trying to think in my head of we think of someone like Ricky Gervais, right? I don't know whether you like Ricky Gervais or not. Personally, I really do. I really, so like, I. I really like Ricky Gervais. Okay, some of the stuff that he has kind of done in the past, I do think has went too yeah, far. Yeah, yeah. I do think it's went too far. But sometimes when you hear the sensationalism about it, you kind of go, oh, wow, okay, what's this? What's he done now? And you look into it, you watch it, and you go, okay, he isn't actually poking fun at the thing you're getting shocked at. Mm-hmm. It's a, it is a really delicate thing to do. I don't think he gets away with it all the time. I think there's times it's just kind of perfect. I'm thinking of, um, oh, God, this is a bit where I'm going to be terribly offensive. Um, I'm going to get them wrong. Is it Caitlyn Jenner? Caitlyn Jenner? Or am I getting the the wrong Jenner? No, Uh, I think it's the right one. (laughs) It's like um, did amazing things for women and female representation didn't do a lot for female drivers. And you're just like, oh, yes. Yeah, okay. I get that. That's great. This, on the other hand, is just... <sighs> do, you, do you think, though, it's someone looking for the... This Because we don't know, because he's passed away now, but um, <sighs> do you think there's a sense... Do you think it's it's an act? Do you, like, from what... Uh, from based out on just what you saw in the documentary, do you think it's someone looking for a reaction for people to you know get that reaction to get the kind of publicity that comes with it or do you think that it is someone who is just offensive honestly i i don't know there was this is like a really stupid comparison but there were times where he felt like he reminded me of uncle andy from give my head piece just that ridiculously <laughs> over exaggerated stereotype do you want to explain <laughs> to uncle andy is for any of our listeners, such a northern irish reference <laughs> any no any of our listeners outside of oh God. northern ireland who may not have had the pleasure the pleasure victoria brown of watching the umpteen series of give my head piece Okay, if you don't know who Uncle Andy is, he was a very stereotypical loyalist Protestant who was in Give My Head Peace that just took the absolute piss out of Northern Ireland and the troubles on our ridiculous political climate. Mm-hmm. Uncle Andy, he's he's an Elvis lover. He talks like this. He's very offensive, but like he thrives on it. But I don't think I don't think the character means it because the nature of the show is satirical. I I really don't know of El Duce. I spent the whole time 
wondering. And then I was kind of thinking, because the film opens with um, the old timey like title cards yeah. from the Birth of a Nation, Birth where I was nation, like, yeah. that's so that's so random. But I wrote down the title card starts with we do not fear censorship. So that idea of censorship and free speech runs throughout the documentary. Mm. And I was curious. So I looked up on Amnesty International's definition of what free speech is. You have done a lot of homework for this show, Victoria Brown. It, 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 it annoyed me so much because I was watching it being like, he's saying disgusting things, but surely he has a right to say them. Like, it's not my job or anyone else's job to police what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so they said, free speech is the right to seek, receive, and impart information and all kinds of ideas by any means. But freedom of speech can be restricted to prohibit hate speech which mm. I think is what he was doing. Like at the very, very start, when, like you said, it opens with him doing a performance. He's got the mask and all on. And he literally says, anyone that likes to rape women say, say hell. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And again, like you said, if I was an interviewer, I would find him fascinating. But if this was just some dickhead down in the pub, I would be like, what is this guy doing? Mm. But well, he's, he's, he's given, um, what's the word? Like, you know, when someone's like on camera and they're in power, they're justifying what other people actually, even if he doesn't mean what he's saying, mm. he is justifying the beliefs of people that actually believe that. Do you, do you think he would, because this is one thing I asked Tim, and I can't, I, I can't remember exactly what Tim said. It was, it was a couple of days ago we did that interview. That idea of like, do you think he would be saying those things if there if there wasn't a camera present? Because you get a sense like that, the concert that at the start that we talk about, He's aware there's a camera there. He knows there's a camera there because, you know, mm. Ryan has been speaking to him. He's met him. He's brought, you know, as I say, no, these are not recorded on smartphone, smart, smart. These are not recorded. <laughs> these are not recorded on, these are not recorded on smartphones now. You know, these were, you know, back in the 90s, back in the day, Victoria, these were big, bulky things. You couldn't get away from the fact that they would be there. You would know they were there. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the thing I asked with Tim, you know, is the fact that they're there? is the fact that they're there filming no matter what they thought, whether it was going to be for a short or whether what it turned out to be. Okay, it sat in storage for nearly 20 years before it came out. But that is fueling that, I suppose, ego Mm -hmm. in a way to say, well, if I can get this on camera, this will provoke a reaction. This will get said. This will get us notoriety. You know, is it weird to say, is he he doing these things not just much for the notoriety, but for the potential for record sales. I don't know, because w- watching watching it and watching the interviews, it reminds me, you talked about your weird comparison with Uncle Andy. <laughs> I'm not going to go as niche as that. It reminded me in a weird way, and I'm not going to say in any sense there's similarities between the two. A couple of years ago at one of the Comic-Cons in Belfast, I remember interviewing a wrestler, right? And... Okay. It was Hacksaw Jim Duggins. And uh, he couldn't get away from the persona of Hacksaw Jim Duggins. And this okay. idea that all throughout on camera, as soon as the camera was on, he had to be this really loud, really obnoxious kind of character in that sense. And as soon as the camera came off, he seemed normal. And you were like, I don't want to... I felt like an exorcist, right? It's like, I don't want to speak to this persona I want to speak to you and I get a sense we see that as the documentary goes on with Ryan like there's there's moments where he talks about his father's relationship with his sister you get a sense that Ryan Saxon is trying to do that exact same 
thing. I don't know because we'll never know. I don't know if he succeeds. There's that sense he's trying. He he's clearly meeting this guy who's built up this persona of who he is, what he stands for, and what he's all about. And I think you get a sense you see an interviewer trying to kind of like kind of break that down and get to the core. I don't think he succeeds. I don't know if you would disagree or not. I know he does open up at times, but I still don't think that justifies what he's saying. No, I, I agree 100%. Because uh, there's a th- we, we learned about this theory in documentary cinema when we were doing the documentary cinema module at Queen's. Um, most documentaries are either fly-on-the-wall approach, which is you pretend the cameras aren't there, or there's fancy word, cinema verite, which mm-hmm. is... The camera is there to provoke. The camera is there to bring out the truth in you. But like you said, is he doing it because there's a camera or is the camera pulling the truth out of him? It's hard to know. And we'll, like you said, we'll never know. No. Because he, he's not here anymore. No. I um, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. It's it's a bizarre one. And it's coming back to that question, Ashley, and I'm not sure if, if we really kind of tackled it. That sense of... I, we, we, I think we've both made it clear. We find this guy offensive. We didn't like him. But we both really, really liked the documentary. Yeah. And, you know, is that is that an issue for you? The fact that we can really enjoy a documentary but hate the the source of the documentary, the, the kind of the way, the central character that's being interviewed, the central character that is causing the narrative thrust. Like, here's the thing. Turns around, say tomorrow. Okay, it's a weird kind of world because we're living in COVID. You might not be seeing people. Say tomorrow, you're at work. You're kind of saving the nation as an essential worker, Victoria Brown. <laughs> Thank you. And your colleague turns around to you and says, Do you know what? You do that blog and stuff with Banterflix. Would you recommend a movie for me? Okay. And you would be like, Oh, yeah, you know, well, you know, yeah, I've recommended every single Disney film that has ever existed. <laughs> We've got through that. Did you hear us talking about Robin Hood? No. Well, you said this in that podcast. Was out early the week. But would you recommend them say, why don't you watch El Duce? I would recommend it, but only... I, d- I don't think people who aren't like really into music would be that interested. If you get me, like, if like, there's people I went to school with who were very, very into the music, they loved the whole punk scene, the shock rock scene, I would recommend it to people like that. I think this might be more of a niche audience, but that might just be... My but do you, personal opinion. Do you think if you're interested in what we've kind of touched in, we've only dabbled in it, that idea of free speech and censorship? Because I think that this is where I think the documentary kind of expands beyond just the music industry, because it's not really a documentary about the mentors, really. That, that's what I was expecting. That's why when I went initially went in, I was like, right, this is probably going to be similar to the Rolling Stones one that I watched, yeah. and it wasn't at all. There was a review somewhere that said it was a character study, and it is. Like, it's mm-hmm. not, like you said, it's not about the mentors at all, really. It's, it's all about El Duce. It is a character study, and it's that idea of what do you do with a character like like him? You know, you're kind of damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you give him media attention, that will only fuel the flames. If you censor him, if you ban him, if you push those people out to the kind of and say, well, push those people to the sidelines, that attracts people. And say, well, oh Jesus! If this guy's music's banned, if this guy's, I I want to see what he's all about because that's that's what we're like as human beings, you know. When I think back of this is a time that predates you, but you'll know what I mean when I talk about the 
the video nasties. Yeah. Era, you know, when there was the list of films that were banned in, in the UK, that became a, a, a watch list for me. It's like, fuck, I want to watch this. I want to watch that. I remember watching Exodus and going, why was this banned? Why why was this bad? You know, in that sense of good, but that's what I mean. You that pushed you to that that pushed you to that and that film and this film, stuff like Driller Killer and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But you know, it's that sense of you're kind of damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you give them media attention, you you feel the flames. If you ban them, you create curiosity about the mentors and their music. So it's that sense of, you know, kind of where do you draw the line? What's your thoughts, Jen? I know it's, this is going to be a big loaded question, right? <laughs> so you feel free if you want to take a, bit, a couple of minutes or two to think about like, what's your general thoughts on the concept and ideas of cent- the concept of censorship? It's, it's such a big thing. I feel like this comes up every time we talk, <laughs> but I'm okay with that. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of fascinated by it. One of my lecturers in Queen, she actually specialised in the BBFC, like 1970s, video nasties, mm-hmm. uh, regulation censorship. That's what her like expertise is. Um, but like you say, you, you really are damned if you do and damned if you don't, because humans are naturally going to be like, oh, why was this banned? I must mm-hmm. know everything about it. But if, but if you give them that platform, then it justifies their belief because they have a right to, just because you have a right to say it doesn't mean what you're saying is right. Mm-hmm. But who am I to place what they're saying? Yeah. It, it's it's so hard. And it, there's a thing going around on Facebook. It's um Karl Popper's intolerance paradox. And it's been mis- it's been misused by people on the right and left, like both mm-hmm. sides misuse it. But the the graphic that's going around basically says that you can't tolerate intolerance. Mm-hmm. But how far do you go with that? It, it's yeah. such a contentious issue and with something like this because this guy is disgusting i i was really like cringing watching him i mentioned I... it to matthew and like kind of because he doesn't know any music at all he didn't know what shock rock or anything was and i kind of explained to him and gave him a bit of context. hang on you can't bring a term like that he doesn't know music at all so you <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> what what does matthew listen to i feel every time we kind of talk one-on-one victoria we seem to talk more and more about matthew matthew listens to nickelback the white oh. stripe, that one white stripe song and gr- grime, like white rap. I don't know what it is. It's not my scene at all. Our music oh. tastes are very, very different. Oh no. <laughs> um, but I was explaining to him like all the stuff that LDJ mm-hmm. was saying, and I was like, "Well, what do you think?" And he was like, "Well, he has a right to say it, surely." And I was like, "I know he does, but it is so, it's so disgusting." When you asked him, did he turn around and say, "Guns don't kill people, rappers do"? Oh god. I, I don't know why. I'm sorry, Matthew, if you're listening. Um, I only get my uh, my kind of interpretation of you through Victoria, through we hear your movie taste. And now in He's this lovely, podcast, I, I promise. And now in your podcast, we hear that you listen to Nickelback, one White Stripe song, and grime. It's all right. It's all good. I, I, I don't know. As I say, they, they, they take the piss in this documentary of, of Bon Jovi. I like Bon Jovi in the 80s. What can I say? You noticed that? I was like, how dare you? You know, you can take the piss out of Bon Jovi now, but not back in the eighties when he was kind of hot. No, that, hot that John. was a power move. Like that was hot. That that's was hot the, John. That was something I noticed. Um, El Duce was very like pro, like manly man. He was very against like like Kiss, who would have used mm-hmm. a lot of makeup and wigs and stuff. He was very. He kept calling them glam rock fags. He didn't like Motley Crue like, either. Hmm. 
didn't no, like Motley did Crue. No, he did not. He made, he made that very clear. And Motley Crue are, are definitely a, a group of lads, you know, from mm-hmm. what we hear of what Motley Crue and, and co got up to. They, mm-hmm. they were not, and I hate to use the term, they were not kind of... I don't even want to use the term, but no, they were definitely. I hate. I even hate this term even more. Motley Crue were definitely a group of lads, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I don't really know why he would 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 pick them specifically. I don't know whether it's not the fact that they're successful. It was yeah. It was such a weird band to like direct all that hate towards. I did love that episode because it's not. I forget who it's who he's on with. It's um. Uh, I forget who, it's not Jerry Springer, it's the other guy. And just when he's slagging off Motley Crue, there's just this group of really obnoxious looking like children, or not children, like teenagers, just getting really annoyed and like really angry at him. And you're like going, I don't know if I'd like to spend time with you guys either. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know who wins there. It's like Alien versus Predator. Whoever wins, mm-hmm. we lose. Um, I would recommend this documentary if, if I was being honest. I, I would say... There's definitely things that they go into, like you would have to warn people of certain triggers mm-hmm. and things that it t- that it touches on and things that it kind of discusses. But um, I do think it's an interesting character study, and I think by allowing it to be about the character and the man, it allows it to be more about less about the music and more about the things we're talking about now, the yeah. censorship, and that's I think I think that's a kind of interesting way and an interesting in to this documentary. I'm sure there have been documentaries made about the mentors. I'm pretty certain of it. There have been more straightforward charting their kind of career. They're, I don't know if they were, the doc- documentary doesn't really make it clear. I don't think they were ever big. They don't seem to be. Like They seem to be like big amongst that specific like fan base, but I don't think they were like, like if I asked my dad, I don't think he'd know who they were. Yeah, because it's, they aren't my music. They aren't my musical taste. I'm not into grime. Sorry, Matthew. I'm not <laughs> into grime either. I don't know. I'm. I like a bit of this and a little bit of that. Hey, I listen to everything from Radio Two to Scala, maybe even a bit of Radio Ulster when Hughie D's on. That's a very <laughs> other Northern Irish niche reference. <laughs> I'll not even try to explain your oh, uncle God, Hugo. No. <laughs> all I will say is Hughie D is your uncle Hugo from Straban, and that's all you need to know. And he was someone, he, do you know what? In all honesty, Victoria, there was someone, see, a few years ago, I said, oh, Hugo D, Hugo Duncan, to give him his full name, censor him, get rid of him, can't stand the man. See, in the last year or two, particularly this year of lockdown, I've been like, you know what? Let him do his thing. Let him do his thing. He's making people happy, even if he does that whole skibbity-doobity-doobity-doo, all that kind of stuff. I can't stand that. And he talks over records which is what a dj should never do but anyway that's going down the hugo duncan thing hugo duncan is nothing <laughs> like el duce i just want to make that clear hugo duncan is actually a rather nice man who presents a radio show on radio ulster and sometimes he talks a language that not even us northern irish people kind of understand but we're getting off topic which is what we do but um i i don't I don't know. I mean, as I say, I don't know really what else we need to say about the documentary. I I think my main criticism, as I've already said, is I wish that the parallels and the kind of theories that they 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 create by the end, or the kind of the things that they want to point you to, and the legacy of of the mentors and what they all stood for. I wish they had done that sooner. Like I'd rather yeah. they start in a weird way. I'd rather they started with that kind of weird. I think it's Saturday Night Live skit. 
or something with Amy Poehler. Um, that was so bizarre. You know, in a weird way, I I think they kind of they they started. They probably did the best thing they could. This is an offensive person. Let's get that right over and done with. Yeah. Let's get that out there right now. But I just think the, the interest and stuff, just as I was kind of going like, right, okay, I'm actually getting into this now. I kind of want to know. Did, did you miss, do you think, because most of the talking heads are just mostly f- folks from that scene. I don't think, like, I mean, they don't interview Jerry Springer or anything like that. Any, anybody like that. They don't mention anybody. They don't interview, I think, anyone from the media side of things you don't interview anyone from the political side of things do you think the documentary needed that i don't know i think that would have made it too broad and then it would have been hard to make a point of any kind like you would have just been seeing clips after clips after clips i I do like the way like you said i would have preferred the parallel to come in a bit sooner Hmm. but i think considering they had 40 odd hours of footage i think the way they've structured it and condensed it was done really really well yeah. Like, I thought it was very balanced, but I'd be kind of curious to see what the media thought of him, because obviously you only got what they aired on TV, and that's meant to that's meant to be controversial to get you to watch mm. it. But I'd love to know, like, their actual opinions of him, now that you yeah. say that. Especially that other guy. I, I, don't, I don't know his name. He was the more right-wing side. Because I'd just love to see, like, Jerry Springer now, looking back in that sense of mm-hmm. there's no one really from a media point of view, kind of send this idea of what we've mentioned, this idea that the more you focus on someone like that, the more attention you bring to who they are and what they stand for. There's no one from that. I think there's a couple of, there's, I think it's his sister makes that point. They go, he loved it. He lapped it up, you know, and I think there's another members of the band. I think you mentioned this earlier on. It really helped our record sales and that kind of stuff. We see all that, but I'm just kind of, it would be curious to see, if there was an interview with someone, because they've clearly went and done some interviews, kind of posted, because it's not yeah, yeah. it's not all this archive footage, but it would have been interesting to see someone from outside of that scene. Some of the, I think the two interviews that really stuck out for me, other than Nail Duce himself, is his girlfriend, who you've mentioned too. Yeah, she was odd. See, see when she mentioned that they'd only been together six weeks, I was like, oh, okay. Did you hope? I, I didn't know what. Did you hope, Victoria, that it was like they broke up after six weeks in one day? I, I hope so. Because I, I couldn't get like a read on her. Because she would talk, she, like, they asked her, like, does he treat you nice? Like, how did you meet? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, love, you seem really nice. Why why are you with this guy? She seemed really naive. She's, I don't think she understood what he was actually like. Because she mentioned, because they asked her if he, if he got drunk around her. Mm-hmm. And she kind of said, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. And I was like, Love that 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 should bother you. That should be a red flag. Like that's mm. not cute or endearing or charming. Like he needs help. It's not like listening to grime music. It's not endearing like that. <laughs> but um, and then there's another there's another female interview that he that they speak to. Who I yeah. think is I don't think she's I don't know if she's in the band or she's just a dancer in the band or they just work together because he started out in a strip club. Yeah, but I think she was like a roadie or something. I find her. Again, kind of that weird, kind of like, kind of, I'm re- interesting, but at the same time, kind of, really? This is kind of yeah. how you think? It's like, she's like, yeah, all that stuff's a load of nonsense, a lot of hookum, doesn't offend me in the slightest bit. It's like, really? What does offend you? Because <laughs> it's like, coming back to the girlfriend, like, there's, 
there's the ones you say there's is any of their songs they offend and there's one is it on the rag i hate using oh, that God, yeah he's like yeah. yeah and you're like that's the one song that offends me and you're like really out of, out of everything that he says there's stuff about sodomizing women there's stuff about raping women and you're like if there's a bit where there's a bit i visibly like cringed at, and i was close to turning it off where he talked about peaceful rape and i was like no yeah jesus fucking christ yeah he kind of talks about it and it's in detail it's and he, very much in detail and it is a again i would say that Nick, there's i was watching it where we record now it was a screener that was sent us i was watching it on my computer and i know we talked about this you know a a few weeks ago with the Robin Hood episode where we're talking about the fact that something like this is in streaming, you have the power to turn it off there and then. Like you, I, I did get close. If I wasn't reviewing this, if I wasn't doing an interview yeah. for it, I think I might have turned it off. Yeah, me too. I don't even know if I'd got that far. That that was my issue with the bit at the end, with the parallel. I think if they, that felt very tacked on. I feel like a lot of people wouldn't get that far before they turned it off so their whole point would have been gone that yeah. dialogue for the wider themes of what they're actually exploring yeah if you get yeah. me yeah we're talking the same thing it's kind of my issue in that sense that to draw the parallels with society now and we think now of twitter and what's going on i keep mentioning it, it sounds like i'm bloody obsessed with donald trump <laughs> but all that things like we think now of like the horrors of what it would be to have El Duce on social media. How many times Twitter would have to go behind a message, this views expressed this tweet are offensive and may cause distress. You're like, yes, I, I would imagine that would just be his profile picture. Mm -hmm. But I think that is an issue because if you're watching and you don't know what it's about, other than found footage and it's an offensive character, particularly, I mean, that scene you're talking about in particular, about the peaceful rape, that, I think, is a point where I think a lot of people say, well, where is the actual, where are you going with this documentary? Yeah. Other than trying to shock me and trying to show me that offensive people exist. I know offensive people exist. There's been one in the White House for four fucking years. Mm -hmm. I know that. But, uh, yeah, it is It is my my big criticism, and I know I'm repeating myself, is, is what they try to do with the documentary. It feels like they've tried to kind of bring together those 40 hours for this and like mm -hmm. as you said if they'd done that sooner i think you would know kind of clearly what you're on board for um, yeah it, it, like the, mo the more i watched it, it like you said it was just constant repulsive comments and it was just over and over and over again i was kind of like right i know i know what he's like now i've been watching for 40 minutes like how much more are you going to show me like what's your point would you watch it again Not on my own. I might watch it with someone else to see their reaction, but I I don't think I'd watch it. I'm I'm glad I watched it. I do think it's very powerful. I think it's well made, even with our criticisms. But I don't think I'd watch it again on my own. Yeah, I think I would struggle if like if it's not a case of if it was shown on film four, on BBC One, <laughs> BBC Two, ten o'clock. I wouldn't be saying right. I'm gonna sit up and watch that. It's not La La Land. It's not like gonna go right. I'm gonna watch that. It's definitely not La La Land. <laughs> But mm -mm. Um, I think I would struggle to to want to watch this again in the same way yeah. I think nobody in the world has ever said, I'm really in the mood to watch Shinder's List tonight. I don't think anyone has ever said that. Christ. And God, no. It's that sense of, it's it's something I've watched, I'm glad I've watched, I think it's well made, I think there's flaws, I, I think it's an interesting character study, but I don't think I'd want to kind of go 
go back. I just feel dirty. I feel dirty again just talking yeah. about it. I think on that note, we shall wrap up our review of the El Duce tapes. It's available now on Video On Demand services. Feel free to check it out if you so wish. And with that, we shall move on to the last part of this podcast, Any Other Business. Okay, Victoria, very quickly, let's talk about something much more lighthearted. Let's move away <laughs> from the nastiness of El Duce. Um, let's kind of very quickly talk about some of the stuff you've watched over the last week or so. I um, haven't been watching much. Like I've been in work a lot and I'm really reluctant to commit to anything new at the minute because my mental health's very low. And I know I wouldn't enjoy it. I wouldn't pay attention. Um, I am excited though. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure when this podcast is going to come out, but Disney have just announced a load of stuff. But they're doing a series focusing on Tiana mm -hmm. from Princess and the Frog. They're doing Baymax. They're doing Zootopia. What else? Did it? Moana. Uh, the, the new Loki series as well. Very excited for that. I met Tom Hiddleston a couple of years ago when he was here filming High Rise. We went twice and he remembered me the second time. So every time I see him, I'm like, there's my baby. He remembered me. Hang on, Victoria. So you stalked Tom Hiddleston when he was in Northern Ireland? Yes, I did. To be to be fair, he was. They filmed in this really. It was about. It was like my childhood swimming center in Bangor. It was in Bangor, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I worked at the cinema literally like like a minute up the road, so I knew he was there. <laughs> and he was he was really lovely. Like I, my friend Brooke was obsessed with Marvel, and she wasn't able to go, so I had her on the phone. And he came up to me and was like, "Who are you talking to?" And I was like, "Oh, well, it's my friend." And he was like, "Do you want me to speak to her?" And I was like, "Brooke, you hold on a second. Someone wants to talk to you." It was the best thing ever. <laughs> I um I didn't get a proper chance to chat to him, but a few years ago, I think it might have been when they were filming High Rise, uh, a film I absolutely love, by the way. Um, he was here. Ben Wheatley was doing a thing at the QFT for the first episode of one of the series of Peter Capaldi's Doctor Who. Oh. And someone just sneaked into the seat, <laughs> two seats behind me, and I turned round and I was like, Tom Hiddleston. You're you're Tom Hiddleston. Oh my god. I'm sitting within kind of like two rows of Tom Hiddleston. Uh but you know what I, I thought it was lovely because no one really bothered him. Nobody kind of was like kind of squealing or screaming. Thankfully. People, people here are very respectful, I find. Like that's a lot of the Game of Thrones stars would say that's why they liked being here, because people don't be like, Oh my god, it's so and so. Apart like, from you, here are, apart from you apart meeting from me. Tom. Apart from me. Yeah. I was 18, they made it. <laughs> But I think a lot of the time, like most people would be reluctant to even go speak to someone famous here. Yeah. Well, it, it depends on the fame. From, from, people, from people I've known, like my uh, Matthew's uh, friend saw Peter Dinklage in Centre of all places and kind of just like watched him like do a shop because he was too embarrassed to go say hello. I don't think I would bother Peter Dinklage. At Sandra, mm -mm. right? I would let him be. I'd maybe take a sneaky feed, sneaky photo, and be like, uh, or maybe kind of hang around. This is going to be terrible. This is me being terrible now, and see if he needed anything from like the top <laughs> shelf. I'd be like, "Hey, Peter, do you mean to help you?" And he'd be like, "Thanks." And then that would be this, the the form, the start of our friendship, and we'd be friends for <laughs> life. It'd take me on to Game of Thrones, of course, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think I've ever. Okay, I've met a few famous people over the years. Um, usually it's been set up with interviews and stuff i've never been this person that has needed to kind of go and get 
autographs. So I know people that are the complete opposite. I'm not saying you are in, in any means. Other than yeah, the only one I've ever done it with would have been Tom Hiddleston. I think, I think people ruin it for themselves and they get like, because like actors are tired. They've been on set all bloody day. They're shattered. Like the last thing they want to do is talk to people and they're going out of their way to be nice and come talk to all these fans. And a lot of them are very rude and demanding. And I think that ruins it for a lot of people. And I never wanted to be like one of those fans. Yeah, but even though the second time Tom's seen you, he's like, oh. <laughs> "Hi, to be yeah. fair, Hi, yeah. I think, yeah, I remember you, yeah." I think you remember me because I asked him to sign something really obscure. Do you remember the the Woody Allen film Midnight in Paris? Mm-hmm. I where where he song. plays where he plays Scott Fitzgerald? Because mm-hmm. I was like, I was doing A Level English at the time. We were doing Gatsby, so I was obsessed, and I was like, "This is a once in a lifetime opportunity here." Because I got him to sign like my DVD copy of it. It's still in my room. So I think that's why he remembered me. Because he was like, Midnight in Paris, really? You, you of all things. You, you didn't quote kind of Gatsby as you were kind of... kind of. <sighs> I, sh- I should have. Gatsby believed in the green light. I, I used to know it all completely <laughs> off by heart. When I get horribly drunk and my Facebook and Twitter timeline <laughs> will verify this, there is several times where I get very drunk. And sometimes when you get drunk, you're talking about mental health. When you get a little bit down, that's what alcohol does. It's Saturday depressant. Mm-hmm. I will find myself just going on to Facebook and just kind of quoting the, the some of the last lines of uh, The Great Gatsby because I, I love... I You know what? I, I like both versions of the film. I love the book, but I love both versions of the films. Both are good in, in different Both ways. have strengths in different areas, yeah. So you haven't been watching much. You're excited about all the stuff that's coming to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to ask one question because we have never actually talked about it since I can't remember the last time we might have mentioned this. Now that it's on Disney Plus, have you ever got round to watching Frozen Two? I knew you were going to ask me this eventually. No, <laughs> I am the worst Disney fan ever. What did I rewatch recently? So you had, sleep, had Sleeping Beauty on in the background when I was doing my Christmas decorations, but like I've just been binging The Simpsons over and over again because I can't really concentrate on anything. Like, there's been days where I'm sick and I've been like, right, I'll, I'll lie on the sofa, I'll lie in our little fort in the living room and I'll watch Frozen 2 and then I just don't. That's okay. That's, By the end uh, of the year, how many days have I got? Not like, a like, lot. three weeks. Not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot. I think when we when we finally hear the words that Victoria Brown has watched Frozen 2, I think we need to do just do a podcast special, even if it is on Christmas Day, and she's just like, Jim, I finally watched it. It's like, right, okay. You know, forget, even if you're coming to onto this studio, onto Zoom, with half your Christmas dinner kind of still in front of you, and Ina, I still want to hear your thoughts on Frozen 2. It's good. Well, it's out in Sky, I think, over Christmas. I don't oh, think okay. it's quite... I, I, I think even though you have Disney+, Plus, of course, other streaming services are available, Victoria Brown, I um I think the, the the time we will be actually get round to hearing your thoughts on Frozen Two is when it's on BBC at Christmas, probably, probably, probably next year, when you're just at that stage yeah. when you're too full of food, you can't move, the dog's been walked, you can't use that as an excuse, and uh, Frozen Two is on, and you're like, all right then, I'll watch it. I I genuinely thought maybe like because it, it it wasn't right away, it wasn't on. It wasn't straight away on Disney Plus the service. Yeah, it took a while. It took, I think, you know, it came out in DVD first, then they released it. I think that's the way it worked. But yeah. um, I thought, you know, 
I haven't really talked. I haven't really asked. It's like she's bound to. She's Every bound time to... we've done a podcast, I'm like, he's going to ask me, and you haven't. <laughs> so she's... I was like, I'll just put it off until I actually watch it. Yeah. So I decided, you know, we've done two Disney recordings, especially about Disney and their back catalogue. I didn't pick it. I didn't bring it up. I decided the perfect time to bring it up would be the El Duce tapes. Oh, of course, because that they make they just align naturally. Okay, so how about that? You know, you haven't said you've been mostly watching The Simpsons. Have you been watching anything? Are you allowing yourself even kind of Christmas movies at this stage as we record? Have you found yourself even kind of tempted the Muppets um, Christmas Carol? You've heard oh, the words. We, we save Muppet... up for Christmas Eve every year. Because the Muppets Christmas Carol, it's now. I don't know if it's going to be on Disney Plus. But it has been restored now. We now have the Ooh. full version of the Muppets Christmas Carol with the song that's only on the album. And the name Ooh. of the song has went out of my head when Scrooge is looking back at his uh, past loves and how oh. Christmas has passed, which uh, I, I wish I knew the name of the song off the top of my head. But I saw recently BBC have said it's been restored. It was only available in the VHS versions of a Muppets Christmas Carol, but it was never on the DVD or the Blu-ray because they didn't think they could get it in high res, but they found it and ah. they've done it. The joys of lockdown when people have much more free time. <laughs> free time. <laughs> so, I mean, we've started watching Christmas movies at our house. We've been watching crap ones, right? Because you, okay. you get the crap ones over and done with, get them done early, and then you can move on to the good ones. You Did you watch w- the, the Christian Stewart one? Yeah, I really liked it. See, have I've you heard seen mixed, I've, No, I've heard mixed opinions, but like I'd rather just make up my own mind. I, I think it's perfectly serviceable. I think it's perfectly fine. There's worse Christmas movies than that. I really like Kirsten Shear as an actress. I really do. I don't judge her performances based on the Twilight movies the same way no. I don't judge Robert Pattinson on all his acting career based purely from the Twilight yeah. movies. I, I think she's done some great things in European cinema. The Clouds of Sils Maria, I would recommend to anybody. Uh, there's a few other ones. Uh, Personal Shopper, I think, is great as well. But um, I think it's perfectly serviceable, perfectly fine. There's things that I could talk about, but I don't want to spoil her. But um, I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would. I still put it on the kind of, if next year, when it comes around to the Christmas movie advent calendar, it'll still be early in December. Not It'll not yeah. be anywhere near the likes of Elf, Scrooge, oh God, no. um, Muppets Christmas Carol, It's a Wonderful Life, Die Hard. Those will all be watched around kind of, well, Die Hard is always watched around Christmas Eve in mm-hmm. our house. We try. I love that. I want to get to the point where I want to time it just at 12 o'clock and hands falls from Nakatoma Plaza. I want to be that much of a nerd, but I never never have been able to. And I've talked about this in the past. This will be the first Christmas in a while. I'll not be back with my parents because my wife normally goes on holiday and uh, we'll be watching it. And my wife is very much of the persuasion, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. <gasps> She's not. We have arguments. Ooh. We have arguments all year round. And... Uh, I'm very much of the fan of the persuasion that it is. It's a Christmas movie. It's a Christmas movie. And it's not just a Christmas movie for boys. It's a it's a good, proper Christmas movie. And um, this will be the first year she has to go through the process of watching it on Christmas Eve. Because I love <laughs> watching it at home with my mum. Because every year she goes, oh, yeah, I know the script of this. I know exactly what's going to happen. And then by 10, 15 minutes into the film, she forgets. She loses herself and everything. And she'll just be like, oh, what's going to happen now? And she shouts the TV and she does everything. That. And uh, I think that's just a thing that happens to mums. I don't yeah. know. 
I don't know. I've heard some. My weird mom's story. going that way. Yeah, I've heard some weird stories about your mom over the years, Victoria. <laughs> so, um, hello, Victoria's mom. If you're listening to this podcast, I don't know what you'll be listening over over Christmas. All I know is that you walk through your house like Snow White. That's all I know. Yes, she does. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think kind of that's kind of, there's not really much else. If you haven't been watching, you haven't got round to watching Frozen two. We're not going to pass any judgment. You know, Simpsons. What's been your favorite Simpsons so far on Disney Plus? I love the the Treehouse of Horrors one, but mm. I'm on the episode where they go to Flanders Beach House and Lisa tries to recreate herself as the cool girl. Mm. And she's like, "Yeah, you know, whatever." So good. Do you know what I've realized? The new ones are they're not great, but they're not terrible. Yeah, they're they're okay. They're like, not. They're not particularly the newer newer ones. I think they've just had series thirty one. Yeah, it's not as funny as the original, as the kind of the early kind of series one. Some people say only one to ten. I maybe go as far as season 15, 16, I think, mm-hmm. when it's still solid. Season thirty-one or thirty-two, whatever we're at now, they're not terrible. I don't think I, if I was watching it now for the first time around, I would fall in love with The Simpsons in the way I had when I watched it when I was younger. But yeah, they're yeah. not. It's not as bad as people have told me. No, I agree. Yeah. So I, I don't really know. I don't think there's much more to say other than that, you know, watch a lot of Simpsons and uh, maybe Victoria at some point. I think we'll start a Twitter campaign and we'll say we need to get Victoria Brown to watch Frozen 2 before 2020 ends. It might. You know what? doesn't give me a lot of time. <laughs> you know what, Victoria? It might be the film that might just gives you that little lift. Because I, I, I don't know. I, this is not me. Generally, this is not me prying. And it's that sense of I'm a firm believer that cinema can lift you when you need it's the warm hug sometimes you need if i was a a doctor right now maybe it's a bit too soon i would say here's a prescription of it's a wonderful life here's a free rental of that watch that it works for me i've never done it at home i usually go to the cinema once a year around christmas say right okay this is the little pick me up that i need that uh, my my belief in humanity will be reaffirmed by George Bailey and George Bailey will be saved. Every year, George Bailey has to be saved. Otherwise, um, you know, it, it could be Christmas with the cranks. That's not going to do any good for anybody. <laughs> but uh, but no, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I say. It's not me being flippant. It's not me trying to pry. If you, I don't know if you feel that way, like if cinema can lift you. No, cinema does 100% do that for me. Just not that's LDJ That's the main tapes. reason I love it. Just not be able. No, that was probably the wrong film to watch. What you should have done yeah. is like to be like LDJ tapes. Just be like, just ready, frozen two. Mm, yeah, that's what I should have done. Just, just let it go, Victoria, <laughs> and uh, just go out there into the unknown. And um, I can't think of any other songs from Frozen. You tried. I can't even think of any songs from Frozen two. Uh, although I do have the soundtrack because my lovely wife sings it to me when she. Um, Goes for car journeys. Oh, that's that's love. But anyway, I, that's enough of my personal life and your personal life. We shall bring <laughs> this podcast to a close. We will let Matthew get back to listen to some grimy music on those headphones, and we shall have you back on a future pod. And maybe, just maybe, by then we'll be able to talk about Frozen Two. Thank you very much, Victoria Brown. Thank you, Jim. So that pretty much brings this week's podcast to a close. Thanks to both Tim and Victoria for giving up their time to chat about the El Duce tips. If you've enjoyed this week's pod, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasting fix. 
If you've been listening to us for a while, maybe you'd be so kind as to leave us a nice review because that helps us attract new listeners to the pod. And maybe you've been listening now for so long you might want to support us through our Patreon page. There's a couple of different tiers. Each have their own various levels of goodies that are available to you as a thanks. You can find more information about our Patreon page at our website at www.banderflix.com and there you'll also find not only the back catalogue of this podcast but also our TV show on NVTV and a glut of written reviews and articles that are all available for you to peruse at your leisure. That's enough of me selling our wares. I've been your host, Jim McLean, and we'll be back pretty soon with another episode of We Need to Talk About Movies. This has been We Need to Talk About Movies. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit banterflix.com. See you next time.